where all my children are the light Born in the sinning, but steady striving to do right My people are warriors, all we know is to fight Pray, they see God in everything I write here So, we're here to have a conversation And I think that means we've got Angela Rye to come and make sure this conversation happens Come on out, Angela Hey everybody, how you doing? Good to see you so first, I feel obligated, Senator, yes. to, um, she didn't get an introduction, but she is a woman who needs no introduction. If you all could give it up for Senator Elizabeth uh, Warren for this live podcast with On One with Angela Rye. Thank you so much, Senator Warren. I'm so glad you're here, Angela. So first, yes, I know you just broke the ice with the audience, but let us break the ice. Okay. I have a top secret pocket for my questions. Bam. Okay. All right. Here we go. You ready, North Carolina a and All right, let's do this. Um, first, I have to do a couple of housekeeping matters. First of all, thank you to Congresswoman um, Alma Adams for uh, almost introducing Senator Warren. We teamwork. <laughs> teamwork. Um, she, I know she had to step out. I also want to recognize one of our former interns and North Carolina a ts SGA president, um, and that is none other than Allison Gilmore. Yes. Also, thanks, of course, as always, um, for opening up your home and your campus to the North Carolina ANT president and to the administration. And last but certainly not least, I want to acknowledge uh, we have three interns um, on this campus. Are you all in the audience? Three interns, my impact, in okay, impact strategies, interns, you all can stand up and wave. Kudos to all you do. Thank you for all you do. Um, and last but certainly not least on uh, a more somber note, uh, Senator, I know this week has been sad for your campaign. You all lost um, Denzel Cummings, who's the North Carolina organizing director. So if we could just for a moment um, give honor to him and just take a moment of silence, that would be great. Thank you. Angela, before yes. we go on, can I say about Denzel? Um, I talked to his mother a couple of days ago, and it's a reminder when you get out and try to build a campaign to try to change the world, it also builds a family. And it's all the people who get together and fight. Our, our team here in North Carolina, our team that's part of the team in South Carolina and trying to build together, but it also brings in everybody else's family. And talking to Denzel's mother about what it meant to Denzel that he was part of something bigger than himself. And that's, that's what he wanted. And I, I just want to say, we will remember him and we will fight on because we do believe in investing in something bigger than ourselves. That's who Denzel was. That's who I want my campaign to be, but it's what I want all of our political process to be, is it's about remembering our values every day and living our values every day. And that's what Denzel reminded me of. Yeah. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank Absolutely. You. Thank you. And thank you to Denzel for his work. And he'll certainly be remembered by the campaign and so many more. Thank you. Um, so I want to start with icebreakers, but first I want to um, tell you about two moments. I had 
um, two interactions with you before being on this stage before. The first, you probably don't remember, um, I met you with Congressman Cleaver, who was my chairman, CBC chairman when I was executive director of the caucus, um, in the executive Eisenhower building, um, uh, and you were coming down and just like super approachable. And I was telling Mr. Cleaver at the time, I was like, wow, she's really nice. He was like, yeah, and smart too. <laughs> uh, which I thought was, was really cute and true to form, um, absolutely the way Mr. Cleaver is. Uh, and the other moment was um, you gave, I got a call from a staffer who said you were gonna call me um, and I didn't know what it was about. So mind you, I've been the CBC ED for a little while before I became a podcast host. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh man, there's something happening. I'm used to having to put out fires from members. There's an ethics thing happening. There's something brewing in the press. Like it's gonna, this is gonna be a big one, right? And I get this call from you and um, on the call, well, let's do this. This will be our first icebreaker. On the count of three, I'm gonna let you drink water first. No, no, it's okay. Okay, on the count of three, Let's use one word to describe this call. If you remember this call, you may not remember this call, but if you don't, you could just sit there silently while I do this on the count of three. Ready? (laughs) Ready? One, two, three. Awkward. What'd you say? Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, so Senator Warren is nicer than me. It was awkward. So what happened was you call me and I'm expecting like, you know, breaking news or something and it's not she didn't call me to tell me she was running for president she didn't call me because she was at the center of a scandal she called me to say congratulations on starting the podcast yep (laughs) right so i'm sitting there waiting and i'm like thank you right isn't this like i'm waiting like there's gonna be something anyway so I hate to tell y'all, there's not going to be any breaking news about scandals today from Elizabeth Warren. The scandal was, thank you, my awkward thank you. <laughs> so now I'm going to just jump right into icebreakers. The first word that comes to mind when you hear these words okay. or these names. Mike Pence. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. Next one. Billionaires. Boo-hoo. Maxine Waters. Oh, I love that woman. Oh, <laughs> Annie Maxine. That is not one word. She, I know, I know, but she is so tough and so in this fight. And she is so out there on House Financial Services. I mean, that woman is a force of nature. Senator Warren, okay, you're if I have to pick cheating. one word, I know. Okay. Awe. 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 All of that. Okay. Awe. The next one is vote. Yes. Okay. Mitch McConnell. No. <laughs> Felicity Huffman. Oh, shame. Oh, I thought you were about to, I thought there was about to be a breaking news moment. Oh, shh. Okay. That's all right. That's all right. Uh, the next is yes or no. Do we need another white man as president? Not right away. <laughs> <laughs> Should candidates have to pass mental fitness checks to become president? You know, that's looking a lot more like maybe something we should be doing. Uh, This was a yes. I'm going to take this yes. You can take that as a yes. Uh, Reparations. Yeah. Uh, Michelle Obama. Oh, wow. Um, Admiration. Well, we're on to the yes or no section. You give her a yes or a no. Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. Should Harriet Tubman be on the $20 bill? Yes. Okay. 
do you do it for the gram? Uh, not publicly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do. You're the selfie candidate. What do you mean? Okay. Are you in it to win it? Yes. Okay. Should we lower the voting age to 16? Uh, what? I'm, 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 I'm not That should have been a podcast question. No, we can, we'll table I'm, it. We'll table it. Okay. Okay. These are your either ors. Okay. You ready? The baby or Snoop? The baby. <laughs> Who tipped her off? Okay. Uh, Popeyes or Chick Fil A? Oh, Popeye. Oh, <laughs> easy. Okay. I, I'm, not, I'm not going in a. What? Okay. What about uh, Domino, Dominoes or poker? Poker. Okay, Netflix and chill or Broadway and dinner? Oh, Netflix and chill. Okay. <laughs> what about Lizzo or Meg Thee Stallion? Meg Thee Stallion. Uh, what is this? <laughs> you clearly are in a room help. of supporters. I'm getting help. <laughs> okay. Aggies or Blue Devils? Aggies. <laughs> Pumpkin or sweet potato pie? Sweet potato pie. Okay, okay, all right. I feel like you you called on your lifeline, but I'm gonna let it live. I'm gonna oh, let no, it that live. one's easy. That I, I easy? grew up in Oklahoma, so <laughs> I'm, I'm big on that one. All right, what about um, break up big banks or big tech? Yes and yes. <laughs> oh, come on, don't make me either Don't make you or. choose. Don't make you choose. Yeah. Okay, I won't make you choose. So let's um, do this part in threes. We're through the icebreakers, but I feel like we're rolling with numbers, so let's keep going. Okay. The first three bills you'd like to sign into law as president. Mm, Anti-corruption. No, I'm serious. We, we beat back the money. Now we got the possibility for making all kinds of change. And the second one is we got to get rid of the filibuster um, because that's just given a veto to giant corporations. It's given a veto to the, you know, where everybody who doesn't want to see any change. So if there's abuse from the Republicans on, like they tried to do to President Obama, like they did to President Obama every day, then the answer is we're going to have to give up on the filibuster and roll that back. And then we start really getting into the structural change. So I'm big on a two cent wealth tax. I think it's a great place to go. With a two cent wealth tax, it's the $50 billion investment in historically black colleges and universities, but it's so much more. It's all of our kids, it's an entire generation. It's universal childcare for every baby in this country age zero to five, including that baby in the back. I'm gonna pitch him on it. It's universal pre-K for every three-year-old and four-year-old in America. It's stop exploiting the largely women, largely black and brown women who do that work. It's raising the wages of every childcare worker and preschool teacher in America. It's $800 billion into all of our public schools. I believe in public education. 
it's quadrupling the funding for Title I schools, schools that are educating low-income children. It's fully funding IDEA so that every child with a disability gets the education that child needs. It's tuition-free college for everybody who wants to get an education. It's money into our HBCUs, and it's one more. It's canceling student loan debt for 95% of the folks who've got it. You think about changes in this country that would be transformative. Just take a look at that one. Two cents out of the pockets of the top one-tenth of one percent in America, this tiny little slice at the top, and that two cents would fund everything I just described. This is a question of our values. Are we going to be in America that just says, you know, it's really important that the billionaires who are growing their fortunes, fortunes that have their own money managers and their own PR firms, is it more important to protect their two cents or to make that investment in an entire generation of Americans. I'm for the latter. We got to invest in everyone. And speaking of our values, one of the values of this country at least should be diversity. Yes. So when you think about the makeup of your cabinet, what three African Americans do you feel like you have to have in your cabinet? Ooh, you know, there's a little danger in this answer because... <laughs> Some of those folks who are running for president may not want to be here themselves mentioned as cabinet members because, dang, there are some good people. Uh, and some of them are in Congress and may not want to hear that somebody's got... Is that okay? <laughs> <laughs> Congressman so, Adams said, you don't have to call my name. It's not. <laughs> but, you know, it is. It's about having people who are fighters. It's about having people who are in the fight and want to be in the fight and are going to stay in the fight. For me, it's about building a cabinet that's about people who share the same vision and who don't just share the vision, who don't just see the big idea, but who have a real commitment to get out there and fight for it. That's what I want. I want fighters in my cabinet. Three names. Oh, you're, you're making me cut off all the politicians. But, <laughs> but if I can talk about people who aren't politicians, I talk about my former governor, Deval Patrick, who is a pretty terrific guy. Um, I talk about some of the people I've met who are presidents of HBCUs, especially those who are deeply engaged in education. Um, and I'm trying to think, because I, I, I'm trying to stay outside the current Washington part, where's the best place to go for cabinet members, you know? It's, um, it's to have people who are in the fight, people like Melody Barnes, my friend of more than 20 years, who's been in this fight from the beginning, who under President Obama was, uh, uh, did, uh, was policy, domestic policy advisor, um, someone like Melody, uh, who may not be as well-known uh, to this crowd, but who is out there fighting every day 
for money for higher education, money for public schools. So that'd be somebody I'd love to have in a cabinet. Uh, what about three differences between you and Bernie Sanders? Mm-mm. What? <laughs> no. And I'll tell you why. I've really um, avoided this question in the, in the sense of I don't want to try to characterize somebody else. You know, he, he's running for president, good for him. And so is everybody else who's out there running for president. What I'm going to do is I'll talk about why I'm running. And I'll talk about what I'm doing. I'll answer anything about my policies or about myself. But I really think that's what we should be doing in a primary. It's not trying to characterize each other. I'll just tell you what I'm here fighting for. So from the standpoint, though, of um, differentiation in policy positions, not like, I have blonde hair, he has gray hair. Like, not like that, but just like, what makes you different to, from Bernie Sanders? For example... Yeah. Just for example, um, Bernie Sanders, right after the last debate, snagged three-fourths of the squad. Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. But yesterday, mm-hmm. you scored the last fourth. Uh, and a good friend of mine, Ayanna Presley. Yep. Um, Congresswoman from Massachusetts. Absolutely. Congresswoman from Massachusetts. So even to the point of splintering, at least from, from an optics perspective, the squad right? There is some distinction. And so I don't think it has to be a shady diss, but is there, you know... I, it's not that there's not difference. Of yeah. course there's difference. Yeah. We're not the same people. Right. But Bernie and I have been friends for a long time. Uh, we fought side by side long before I got into politics. I haven't been in politics uh, that long. I, I got in the race for Senate in 2012. And that was it for me. I never thought I was going to be in politics. I was always going to teach school. Uh, that's where I was going to stay. And then my research. And, you know, sometimes a fight comes to your door and you can either back up or you can jump in. And I, 2012, I jumped in. But I really am serious when I say I'm not going to talk about how Bernie frames what Bernie wants to do. Bernie should be the one to do that. I'll talk about what, how I'm going to frame it. And I'll talk about what I'm going to be out there fighting for. You know, Primaries are hard because you're not running against the bad guy. You're running against your friends. You're running against people that you've fought alongside and people you respect and have admiration for. And yet you're saying, I think I'm the one to carry the ball here. So I think the way to do that is to say, I'm the one, I think, I'm the right one to carry the ball, and here are the reasons why. Because I'm telling you how I'm going to do it. I'm telling you where I'm going to do it. I'm telling you what I'm going forward on. I just, I just don't want to do the others. I want to let them get their chance to get out and talk about what they want to do. And at the end of the day, it's going to be up to the folks who vote. Does that mean we could expect to see a uh, um, Warren Sanders ticket? We could expect to see any kind of ticket. <laughs> You're like, in this you day and age. Well, but you, know, yeah. but, but you are right. When you say, so what does the ticket look like going forward? And the answer is, this is the moment in democracy. We got this chance. I said it's going to be up to the voters. Before it's up to the voters, it's going to be up to the volunteers. 
It's going to be up to the people who pitch in five bucks. It's going to be up to how we build this movement. Because the only way we're going to make real change in this country, big structural change in this country, is if we build a movement, and a movement that not only carries us through the primary, but a movement that's our advantage come November 2020, and then nobody gets to go home. It's about staying engaged so that come January 2021, we hold Congress accountable and we make the changes we need to make. Speaking of changes, I bet you could come up with more than three between you and Donald Trump. I bet we could. I bet you could. So um, That part's a lot easier. (laughs) (laughs) Um, On Donald Trump, um, we know impeachment is the news of the day and has been for some time. In your opinion, what took Democrats so long? Besides not listening to Queen Maxine, which they yeah, should have exactly. done a long time ago. Uh, she was on it. Uh, you know, look, when, when I um, first made the decision to run for president, I got in this race never thinking impeachment would be part of this. Ready to take him on, on his record. You know, I, yeah, I knew all the stuff that was going on, but I thought not, not about impeachment. The Mueller report came out in April, and the day it came out, I sat down and read it and read all into the night and early the next morning, 448 pages, read every one of them. I got to the end and I said, whoa, we know three things. Hostile foreign government attacked our 2016 election for the purpose of helping Donald Trump. Part two, as a candidate, Donald Trump welcomed that help. This was all documented in the Mueller report. And part three, once he was president and the federal government tried to investigate part one and part two, he did everything he could to obstruct justice. I got to the end and said, it's clear. He needs to be impeached. And that very day, I called for him to be impeached. And what what I said then is, and if we don't hold him accountable, he will keep breaking the law. This is a fundamental constitutional issue. No one is above the law, not even the President of the United States. And you said that this isn't about politics, it's about principle, and that was just about the Mueller report. That's now right. There's- <laughs> so then what happens is, you know, Congress is going back and forth about it, and sure enough, come this summer, Ukraine Donald Trump breaks the law because he feels like he isn't going to be held accountable. And then when he gets called out in September, he says with China, hey, I'm going to break it again, right? Let me, let me engage China in interfering in our elections. And he withholds all of the documents that Congress is entitled to, which is another impeachable offense. So I think the place where we are right now is that we have no choice on this. As, as a government, every, this is not about politics. Every single person in Congress swore to uphold the Constitution of the United States of America. And that means when a president breaks the law repeatedly in ways that undermine our democracy, it is Congress's responsibility to impeach him. And that's where we are. 
and Senator Warren, at the heart of this is um, election security. Yep. Um, of which there have been three bills brought to the Senate floor, all killed by Mitch McConnell. I think someone called him Moscow Mitch over there. I think someone might have said that. You heard that yeah. before. Yeah. And, and the interesting thing to me is what is keeping him from consideration of these bills? Inquiring minds want to know. Yeah. Well, look, uh, Mitch McConnell doesn't call me regularly and tell me what he's up to. <laughs> but think about what that means. That coming off the 2016 election, we knew. I mean, the evidence is there that all 50 voting systems were hacked into. And uh, I sit on Senate Armed Services where we... We get information both in public and in private briefings, in secure briefings, and just the inf it just keeps piling up about the attacks on our voting system. And, and, and by the way, not just here in America, but doing it around the world. So this is clearly what Russia, what other countries are looking at it as a way to destabilize democracies. Undercut your confidence that the person who holds elective office was actually elected by a majority and maybe finagled the vote, right, as part of that. So I see election security as something after what happened in 2016, man, we should have been all in on. And if you had any doubt about it, all you had to do was read the Mueller report. We should have been all in on it. And yet um, it took a Democratic majority in the House to move anything serious on election security. The Democrats did their job. And Mitch McConnell, as leader of the Republicans, doesn't really want to invest in keeping our elections secure. Look, there's a pretty obvious message in that. Um, and it's the same message you see in political gerrymandering. It's the same message you see in voter suppression laws. And that is, that Mitch McConnell clearly doesn't trust the democratic process. If everybody votes, his team loses. Yeah. And he knows that. And that's exactly right. I think this is a more sophisticated version of voter suppression. Yeah. North Carolina, of course, is no stranger um, to voter suppression, uh, where at least not the ninth congressional district tried to steal its way into victory um, here in this state. That you also have, this is the birthplace of Moral Mondays, yeah led by Reverend Barber, yep. what do you think is the next frontier um, for folks who are working uh, diligently to fight against voter suppression in North Carolina and beyond? So we know right now here in North Carolina, in fact, we are here at NCANT, right, where I understand you guys keep moving back and forth on what district you're in, and you're now split is that right? Where part of the campus is in one district and part of the campus is in the other. And I'm sure that's just for administrative convenience, right? Yeah, what's that for? After a while, you get the message. Uh, the Republicans don't want you to vote, right? Or they want to make sure that if you do vote, you're voting in a district where ultimately your vote won't really count because they can overwhelm it with Republican votes, right? That's what this voter suppression is all about. So the way I see it is we got... We got kind of a part one and a part two response to that. Part one is between now and 2020. Yeah. And the answer on that is just like Congresswoman Adams said, vote. Yeah. 
and get everybody to vote. We got to come out and come over those. We got to be there. We got to show up and make sure everybody else shows up. You know, we can't have close elections where somebody can kind of finagle it back and forth. We got to come in and we got to win and win by big margins. That's what it's going to take. Then, come 2020, 2021, when we do win, when we've got a Democratic House, a Democratic Senate, and a Democratic President, then we've got to have real reforms on voting. Federally, we can outlaw political gerrymandering and be done. Federally, we can put real money into voter uh, as, uh, uh, so that we make it safe, so that every vote gets counted. We can do that. And federally, we can roll back every racist voter suppression law in this country. And that's what we got to do. I got a plan for this about how to move our voting into the 21st century, into making sure that states have the resources, making sure that our ballots are secure and that our voting system is secure. Protecting our democracy has to be one of our fundamental moral obligations as Americans, whatever your political party. And uh, just to switch gears, um, Senator Warren, uh, on your to your Medicare for All plan uh, that costs about twenty point five trillion over ten. Okay, over ten. Um, ten years. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. Yes, over ten years. Um, it's been called a pipe dream by several, including Senator Klobuchar in the last debate. Um, fairy dust uh, by a New York Post opinion writer. Um, and I just want to ground this conversation in humanity for a second. Um, you had an experience with your father uh, who had a heart attack and you all almost lost your house. How has that grounded um, you into really developing what many have now called a pipe dream and some are calling fairy dust? So um, I grew up out in Oklahoma, paycheck to paycheck family. I was a baby in the family of three older brothers. Uh, I was in middle school when they were all gone, so it was just my mama and my daddy and me. And my daddy had a massive heart attack. And um, even now, I can, I can still remember. We thought we were going to lose him. He, he made it, but he couldn't work for a long, long time. And uh, there was the day we lost the family station wagon. Um, my mother used to tuck me into bed at night. She'd kiss me. She'd give me a big smile, pull my blankets up. And I always knew what was coming next. She'd walk out, close the door to my bedroom, and I'd hear her start to cry. She never wanted to cry in front of me. Um, this is a time when I learned words like mortgage and foreclosure. And for my family, this turned us upside down. Um, ultimately, my mom got a minimum wage job at Sears. The job saved our house and it saved our family. Um, my folks struggled forever, it felt like. 
Um, but I look back on that and I think of it as both what my mother taught me, that no matter how scared you are and no matter how hard it looks, you reach down, you find what you have to find, you pull it up, you take care of the people you love. But I also think of it as a story about government because back when I was a girl, a full-time minimum wage job in America would support a family of three. It would pay a mortgage, it would cover the utilities, and it would put food on the table. Today, a full-time minimum wage job in America will not keep a mama and a baby out of poverty, and that is wrong, and it is why I am in this fight. Today, all across this country, millions of families are struggling to pay medical bills. A diagnosis of cancer, a diagnosis even, a, a diagnosis of diabetes, a diagnosis of ALS is not only about what this is going to mean for a family dealing with medical problems, it's now the risk the whole family is going to be turned upside down financially. Even for families for whom there's nobody in the, the family who's really sick. The average family in America today, the ones who've got health insurance, employer has sponsored helping them, they're spending over $12,000 a year in out-of-pocket costs. They're spending it on, on premiums and deductibles and co-pays and prescriptions that aren't covered. And they're cutting their medications in half. They're not having the lump checked out because of the cost. Healthcare is a basic human right, and we need to fight for basic human rights. When you uh, think about it being a basic human right, one of the key champions of healthcare for a long time, Hillary Clinton, mm -hmm. um, also said recently that your plan won't pass. What do you say to Secretary Clinton? I'm saying you don't get what you don't fight for. You know, you got to be willing to get out there and fight. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. Across this, I get it. Insurance companies don't like it, duh. Um, I get it that uh, drug companies don't like it because it really bites into their profits. But think about it this way. It's a big idea. And I've got it paid for uh, President Obama's head of Medicare is the one who did the cost analysis. His uh, President Obama's uh, chief labor economist is the one who did the pay-fors on it. It's built on the Affordable Care Act and says employers who had an obligation under the ACA are going to have an obligation here under Medicare for All. But fundamentally, it's about saying all those times that Americans have to reach in their pockets and pay, meaning for a lot of people, they can't pay, or they run up the bills, or they don't get the medical care they need, that goes away. And it goes away, understand this, by saying, we're going to ask the giant corporations and the top 1% in America to pay a little more 
so that hard-working families across this country never go bankrupt again over medical problems. I think that's exactly what we should be doing. And Senator Warren, to, to the point of who pays for it, um, one of my concerns as a business owner is I have opted into paying for my employees' health insurance. I have five. So I'm under the 50, yep. um, according to the ACA. I don't have 50, so I don't have to pay, but I'm yep. choosing to do the right thing. Good for you. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's no, expensive. but it is. It's the right thing to do, and I appreciate <laughs> but that. But it's worth it, and I, mm -hmm. I agree is. with you on that. I think the question is, um, am I going to be penalized because I've opted to do the right thing, right? Like currently the plan states that... Um, there, that anyone who already is paying for health insurance, I have to pay for the employee. Right. Even if I am under the 50-member exemption, will I be penalized for that? So here's, here's how this works. Or will my company? Right. Yeah. So think of it this way. There are four sources right now for paying for health care in America. The first is the federal government, Medicare, Medicaid, right? The second is the state government, Medicaid. The third is employers, which right now under the Affordable Care Act, um, most of them are legally obligated to pay. Some are paying who are not legally obligated, but who are legally obligated to pay. And the fourth is people. People who just reach in their pockets and pay, and pay, and pay, and pay, and pay. So what I propose in Medicare for All is to say, here's how we're going to start. Federal government just keeps paying the same that they're doing right now. State government just keeps paying the same as they're doing right now. Employers just keep paying the same as they're paying right now. And the fourth one is that the $11 trillion that over the next 10 years people will, if we don't do anything, are going to be reaching their pockets to pay. That goes to zero. And the way we're going to make up that difference is we're going to do it by increasing taxes on some of the biggest corporations and by increasing taxes on the top 1%. And my personal favorite, by actually enforcing some of the tax laws against tax cheats, which I kind of think is a good thing to do anyway. That when we do that, that takes care of the family's contribution. Now, over time, there's going to be a smoothing out for the employers. So, But what mattered to me to start this is we say employers keep doing what you're doing. States keep doing what you're doing. Federal government keep doing what you're doing. And the only part we really want to change is to say the part that falls on the family who's dealing with a child with cancer. The part that falls on the family that says, you know, I can make it to the next paycheck, but not if I've got to pay for premiums on health care, not if I've got to go pay for a bunch of co-pays and deductibles. It's to take that pressure off working families. It's to say, as a country, instead of investing in the top 1% and the biggest corporations, we want to invest in families. So for me, that's what this is about. And it says to small businesses that over time, what we're going to get here is you're going to be relieved of this responsibility of being in the middle of it. Employers who don't want to be in the health insurance business, make your contribution and know that 
every single one of your employees is covered. Know that when someone comes to work for you, that the difference will be whether or not they want to work for you or they want to work for a big company, not what your health insurance plan looks like compared to the one offered by a giant company. You want to start your own business, you can do it without worrying about health insurance. This is going to free up our economy, put more money in people's pockets, more people who want to be in the game, can get in the game. We just need to take this health care part and, and just take the pressure off hardworking families. That's how I see it. We're sitting today on the campus of North Carolina A&T University, and you mentioned in your opening remarks um, the importance of uh, funding HBCUs to the tune of $50 billion. Um, I know you talked about the wealth tax funding that. How do you see the resources being dispersed to campuses? Uh, varying HBCUs have different needs. Some are capacity. Some are um, ensuring that students can afford to attend uh, buildings, um, infrastructure. What are some of the ways in which you see the funds being used? So let me, let me mention a couple. Also embedded in this is that... Uh, we will put in enough federal money that every HBCU is tuition free. Whether it's public or private, money comes in. We're going to expand the Pell Grants and expand them in both directions, both family income and how much money goes into Pell for any low-income student, so you really have a chance to go to school. But Will the Pell Grants then be used for living expenses? They sure can be. Instead of the tuition. That's right, because you don't need them for tuition, yeah. right? But here's the key part about the $50 billion, is to say to HBCUs, we've got to divide it up on, partly on size, right, on who they serve, the populations they're serving, and it's also for minority-serving institutions, others, um, is the federal government shouldn't tell you what to do. It shouldn't tell you what you need to be investing in. You're investing in your students. You're the ones who should make the best decision on what that means. So for some schools, it will mean they want to take the money and they want to put it into more buildings. They want to put it into rehabbing historic buildings that are not as functional. For some, they may want to put it more into uh, lowering the student-teacher ratio. So they want to hire more people than they have. For some, it may be that they want to build out an area that they're not doing as much right now. Maybe it's science. Maybe it's technology. Maybe it's art. Maybe it's music. But schools should be the ones who should be making those educational decisions. That shouldn't be a Washington-based decision. Look, this is about investing in the future. And when we invest in our young people, when we invest in educating our young people, whether it's our babies, giving them early childhood education, or whether it's our HBCUs, when we invest in young people, we invest in the future. We need to reduce our investment in billionaires and increase our investment in an entire generation of Americans. And Senator Warren, we, I know we have to open it up for um, some audience questions, but in our 400th year of African Americans being here, at least the first documented enslaved person arriving on these shores, um, I know you have a plan for everything. What is your plan um, to address African-American empowerment and success and viability um, and equity in this country long term? 
So it's a great question, and I want to I want to do this by saying it's to recognize where race intersects almost every issue we talk about. There's not like one plan that's just carved out for it. And let me just give you some examples. Education, it's partly to talk about HBCUs. It's partly to talk about raising the wages of childcare workers across this country and making access to high quality childcare early learning experiences for all our babies. But let's take another one, entrepreneurship, something you know a lot about. Um, there is a black-white entrepreneurship gap in America. Right now, whites are about twice as likely to be able to launch successful small businesses as African Americans. The black women are the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs. There we go. Yes. There we go. But here's the thing. Why the gap? Why does the gap exist? And the gap exists because there's a black-white wealth gap and that means there's a difference when you try to start your business just across a broad spectrum about whether or not you've got equity to put into that business. Not loan money, but equity. The kind of money that says it's here no matter what. You don't have to make payments on a, on a monthly basis. So I looked at this and said, you know what? It's about a $7 trillion gap in terms of what it would take to make the same kind of equity investment in black-owned and Latinx-owned businesses. So I figured out where we could get $7 billion over 10 years, set up a fund, this is my plan, so that it's there so that people can start their own businesses. And you do the same kind of procedures as you do right now for borrowing money, only this goes to equity and would help us close that gap. And let me just do one other part on this. This $7 billion fund, it's not to be administered by a bunch of white guys. It's a $7 billion fund that's to be administered by the people who've been cut out. It's to be administered by people of color. It's to be administered by women of color who over and over and over have gotten the short end of the stick in terms of being able to get the capital they need to be able to build their businesses. So that's a way to do it. Here's another one. I love thinking, yeah, it's fun. Here's another one. And that is, I love thinking about what a president can do all by herself. And here's one. One in every four Americans works for a company that gets federal contracts. Okay, who determines the terms on which they get to bid? And the answer is the administration, as you know, right? So here's how it's going to work in a warrant administration. And that is enough of talking the talk. If you want to be a federal contractor, you got to come forward and show us your numbers. You got to show us your numbers on people of color. You got to show us your numbers on women. You got to show us your numbers on how people are being paid. And if you want to bid on these federal contracts, then you need to be walking the walk. If we're going to spend taxpayer dollars, it's going to be on lifting all Americans, not just some of them. 
Don't you think that given your current polling uh, rates with African-Americans was just hovered around 19% that it would help you with the community to have a targeted plan? For example, you have a targeted plan for the Native American community. So wouldn't it help for you to say, these are the things that I'm directly targeting for this community like you've done with the HBCU proposal, for example? Well, it, it is there. It's just in every plan. So the education plan has a part that is targeted on race because race matters in education. Right. My housing plan is a housing plan. We need to build a lot more housing units in America, and I've got a big plan on this. But it also has a piece that says, you know, the United States government for decades subsidized the purchase of housing for white people and discriminated against the purchase of housing for black people. So it's got a specific part to the plan that says, you live in a formerly redlined area, or you lost your house in the crash of 2008 when communities of color were deliberately targeted for the worst mortgages in this country, then there's gonna be homebuyer assistance to get people back economically. Um, criminal justice. It's race that lies right at the center. So for me, it's go proposal by proposal by proposal. And for each one, how I think of this is I think about the big part for all of the country, and then I stop and ask myself, how does it intersect with race? Where, where does race make itself out? My, my climate plan talks about the importance of racial justice that for decades we have put dumps and factories that pollute the water and the air right near communities of color. So black children and brown children are a lot more likely to feel the effects of a dirtier and dirtier climate. So when we think about climate action, yeah, it's about cleaning up overall. You bet it is. It's about cleaning up all across our country and frankly, all around the world. But it's also about climate justice. And it's about making sure, not that it's an afterthought, but that it's built right into the heart of the climate plan that we are gonna put money in to clean up what's happened to communities of color. That everyone should be able to breathe clean air and drink clean water all across this country. And that's gonna take an extra investment for communities of color. I think it's critical. Thank you, Elizabeth Warren. They've had the five seconds card up for about five minutes, so I know we have some uh, student questions at this time. Student questions. Gather on the steps. All right. Okay, hold on. Hello. Hi. My name is uh, Marshall Parker. I'm a political science major here and a Detroit native. Uh, my question is, I feel like our nation is kind of split and divided over uh, marijuana and if we should legalize it, um, if it should be recreational use or medical use. So I want to know what your stance is on it and do you plan to expunge the records and decriminalize marijuana? Okay. So actually, here's a great one that ties into what we were just talking about. You know, the best data show that African Americans and whites use marijuana at about the same rates. We don't have to say what that rate is. 
We just have to say it's about the same. But if you're African-American, you're about four times more likely to be arrested for marijuana use. So I got a plan for that, and that is let's legalize marijuana. And yes, you asked about expunging the records, and let's expunge the records of people who have marijuana violations. This just doesn't make any sense. Thank you. Next question. Hi, my name is Jasmine Wilson, and I'm Hi, a Jasmine. junior psychology and multimedia journalism student here at ANT. And a common topic that comes up amongst a lot of college students, especially here on this campus, is the student loan debt. Mm -hmm. Many of us have made, have had to make tremendous sacrifices in the sake of pursuing higher education, and a lot of us end up in debilitating debt for years after college anyway. My question to you is, what specific strides would you take to alleviate the student loan debt crisis, and what steps will you take to ensure that it doesn't cripple our nation's economy? Okay, so that's a fabulous question. I got a plan for that. Um, and let me just start, can I just add a couple of numbers again, because it fits with what we're talking about here on student loan debt. Many of you may already know this. Um, African-American students uh, are more likely to have to borrow money to go to college, more likely to borrow more money while they're in college, and more likely to have a harder time paying for it after they graduate. There's some new data out that shows that 20 years out, about 94% of white Americans who borrowed money when they were in college have paid it all off. Want to guess the number for African Americans? Remember, 94% of white Americans have paid it off, 5% of African Americans. We got a problem on student loan debt. So my proposal on student loan debt is that we cancel student loan debt for about 43 million Americans. Um, just so you all understand it, what the plan does, because I really worked through the numbers to get this right on the right way to do it, is that it would close the black-white wealth gap for people who have student loan debt, that part of the population, by a, more than 20 points. This would be transformative for millions of people. And you ask the question about what it would do for the economy, think about what it would mean. If instead of a $420 a month, you got to pay it into the federal government, $680 a month, $890 a month, that you got to pay into the federal government, that money stays in your pocket. And that's money you can spend to buy a new car to save up for a new house, to get an apartment so you can move out of mom's house. Uh, it's money. Oh, it means you can also start your own small business. Right? Because you're not burdened by student loan debt. You don't have to make that monthly nut. It means you can move to a small town. You don't have to live in a city where the paychecks are higher. It means you're free to build an economic future that really works. I think this is going to be one of the best things we can do. The two-cent wealth tax pays for it. So let's get this done. Yep. Last question. question. Was there one more question? There was not one more question. Okay. 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 